Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. I saw some fun graffiti on my run today, Wendy. Oh, how was your run? It's nice and sunny out today. It's a gorgeous day. It's a perfect day to get out there and move and uh, got to run a little bit around the lake and rivers in Madison, and that's a lot of fun. Beautiful. But on the side of a building, somebody had um, vandalized it with red rum. Nice. (laughs) On the side of the building, and I'm like, oh, man. Wow. Old school. Yeah, I'm like, that's that's going back, like uh, taking your vandalism (laughs) right out of The Shining. Um, spray painting it on the side of a wall. You know, I just hadn't seen that. And so that was just... Not the most creative choice, but entertaining, I guess. Yeah. It just just made me laugh when I ran by it. I had to take a picture. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) So I was like, who's Red Rum? Okay. Anyway, so that was just... That was a fun little treat today as I was running to get a little little horror in my afternoon. Excellent. Well, we had a big fun weekend and a great week last week had our first patreon hangout yeah last tuesday last tuesday and we got to chat about uh music paranormal topics a whole bunch of different kind of stuff and just get to you know everybody get to know each other a little better yeah so that was fun so much fun that we're gonna do it again yes and uh we look forward to regularly meeting and hanging out with the people from the uh, see you on the other side patreon community always looking for interesting stories we want to hear about your personal experiences and things like that and so uh to do that check that out othersidepodcast.com slash donate to see how you can be part of the patreon community and then hang out and chat and talk weird with us yeah and the next one will be the second week in march so yeah we'll uh, post the data on that as soon as we get it locked in but we also had a big weekend. We had a great show in the area here near Ma- Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. Over at Club Tavern, a haunted venue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, um, I even wrote a little story about uh, the ghost story at Club Tavern, that it's, it's one of the patrons uh, who enjoyed uh, going there every day so much that even afterwards, he still comes back and, and hangs out. I don't know if he like, drinks beer or if you get a discount if you're dead. Um, <laughs> well... Yeah, I don't know either. Did you see anything weird while we were there? I kept my eyes peeled, uh, but I didn't. I didn't see anything too weird. I was. I was mostly yeah. more. I was more concerned with the performance than I was concerned with ghost hunting on that night, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like it. That would be a lot likelier time to actually witness something. And I wish we would have had time to bring some ghost hunting gear along, maybe. But maybe next time. Well, when I think about the club tavern, one one of the uh, stories that I always like to remember is uh, our friend Mike that used to work there. And he told me once that he was looking at the security monitors and he saw someone standing on the stage. And this was wow. after bar time and oh everybody's supposed to be gone. And the band was already packed yeah. up and, go, and so you see something on the stage. So it's like, oh man. So security he, breach. Sees it on the monitor and then he comes out and there's nobody on the stage. You know, and uh, so the camera picked up something that his eyes couldn't. And so that's why I'm hoping we get some haunted footage shows up in some of the video we took this week. Yeah, well, we had a lot of cameras going. So, uh, you know, maybe one of them will pick up something. We'll see. That's right. We're going to comb over that footage with the fine tooth ghost comb to see what kind of, right. kind of hair we dredge up. Yes. 
Uh, all right. So what do you think of when you hear the word shaman, Wendy? Shaman. I think of, I don't know. I think of some kind of religious figure. Yeah. I think of like a witch doctor. I, I think, you know, that I, yeah. the idea of the medicine man or things like that. I think about uh, the movie Altered States, which we talked a lot about in our uh, floating episode. <laughs> because Altered States has like some tribal scenes and they have guys wearing the masks and stuff. And the thing is, so shaman is a very, a very pointed word. It's almost a loaded word in uh, the English language because we have these uh, thoughts that come from the movies. And so uh, one of the things I like about our interview with Rachel Mann today is that she kind of dissects the shamanic tradition and she talks about in a way that's interesting, respectful, and gave me a whole new insight in that. And we go really deep into her interesting history and past lives and, and just things. Like, so that's a, wow. uh, it's a fun interview. All right. Well, how about we uh, take a listen to that right now? Let's. Joining us today is Rachel Mann, who is a shamanic healer and spiritual teacher. So thank you for coming on the show today, Rachel. Where are you at today? Where are you talking to us from? Well, thank you so much, Mike, for inviting me to talk. And I'm actually sitting in my old Virginia farmhouse just outside Charlottesville. Okay. Uh, which is at the center of the state. Mm-hmm. Home of Thomas Jefferson and All right. you know, James Monroe, yes, right? Yes, there, there is a very proud tradition Yes, yes, yes. And so is that the area of the country you're from originally? No, no. Um, However, I have lived here for almost 35 years. Okay. But uh, I was uh, born in Nashville, Tennessee. So I I have an idea that my love of cowboy boots and cowboy hats is from, you know, being born in those parts. Although my parents moved right when I was two. And then we moved around quite a bit in New England and then ended up in the Chicago area back uh, where my parents were from when I was in middle school. So I went to high school there and returned to New England to go to college in Hartford, Connecticut, and then um, ended up coming down to Charlottesville actually to go to graduate school at the University of Virginia. Okay. And you liked it so much in every life. Well, I love it here. I mean, the landscape is gorgeous. I love the mountains. Um, but I actually stayed because I married a native Virginian. Okay. So you married into being a Southerner. I did. I did. Yes. And, uh, um, he and I are no longer married. Um, he is sadly deceased, um, as well, but, um, yeah. So, you know, it was like, uh, they sometimes say about Charlottesville that I remember back when I first moved here, they would say that the streets are paved with butter and that once you come it's very hard to leave it's Ah. a very wonderful place to live you know it's gotten much more sort of you know upscale and trendy in the 30 years you know i remember the first day i arrived i was in a one of those old telephone booths i'd gone i'd taken the red cardinal from chicago to here and i was in a telephone booth trying to make calls and it was swelterling, you know, it was like August. It was swelteringly hot mm-hmm. and humid. And all of a sudden, this huge bug landed on the glass outside the telephone booth. And I was like, oh, my God, I've come to like, you know, right. what kind of, the what, middle of nowhere, the deep south, you know, but with pl- a place really with huge actually, bugs, a place that's dangerous, huge bugs and very humid. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I'm always interested in where people are from and, and, and where they grew up, especially in when we start getting into this type of field, when we start talking about uh, spirituality and religion and, and paranormal and things like that. And one of the reasons I'm always interested in where people are from and everything is because I think it's that part of development. Like everybody seems to kind of like get stuck, not necessarily get stuck somewhere, but there's some aspect in their development where they'll see something and it'll catch their, it'll catch their eye and it'll catch their mind. And it'll lead them down this path eventually. So when you got into spiritual uh, teaching and healing and things, is there anything from you think you're growing up or your development that you think was like, hey, I want to become part of this? Well, you know, the story I always tell is that um, I was born in 1961. So I was the last year of the baby boomers. Um, I was my parents' second child. my mother, who would now be in her early 80s, she died about 15 years ago, was what I call a spiritual maverick. Um, she became very interested in Asian religions, Buddhism, and Hinduism back uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. She had autobiography of a yogi, and um, she also had purchased, and we had in our library, the first two Seth books. Um, if you, uh, if you know anything about Seth, he was an entity channeled by a woman named Jane Roberts. Oh, I've, no, I've heard, I've, I've heard about that. Yeah. And, um, so I ended up pulling, I think it was, uh, the first one, the Seth book, the Seth, Seth book or the nature personal reality. I don't remember, but at the age of 11, I actually read that book and, um, when he talked about how time is not linear, actually, that it's holographic and that everything is happening at once in this holographic matrix and that everything is interconnected and that we live in multiple probable realities and multiple lifetimes. And so at the age of 11, I had a sense or vague memories of having lived past lives. And so with my mother talking about Buddhism and reading the Seth books, I decided at the age of 11 to call myself a Buddhist, even though, uh, because Buddhism was the only religion that I knew that, you know, talked about reincarnation. Sure. Um, I also, yeah. And so, you know, my parents took me to the Episcopal church until I was 10. And I, I will always remember being in church, you know, Episcopalians, they do a lot of standing and sitting and kneeling and standing and sitting, you know, all this sort of thing. We call it the Catholic aerobics. Yeah. And um, I just remember being in the church and hearing uh, the words that, you know, were the chosen people and that sort of thing. And just knowing that that was not what Jesus was all about. I, I just knew that Jesus was about love and inclusion and um, and then when my parents my parents ended up migrating to the Unitarian Church when I was ten, so I kind of went to the Unitarian Church with them peripatetically on and off until I was I left for college. I don't know too much about the Unitarians. They're just like every you know all the gods are the same and stuff. Yeah, but they have a Christian base. They do have a Christian base somewhat, and you know they're a very intellectual kind of church. Now I think that's changed over the years. My father and mother stayed Unitarians until they died. Each of them until they died. But I think it's really interesting, and I love that. Okay, eleven years old, you read this um, this story, which I I guess I mean I still find it fantastic. But even at eleven years old, I'd be like, okay, so this person really is hearing these. Um, 
you know, this voice from beyond or whatever, and the channeled entities, and it's and, you know, that's always a, a stretch, and it's always interesting. But at the same time, yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's no more of a stretch than the burning bush, or uh, you know, the the prophets and things. I mean, it, the, it's the idea that you are seeing something, or you are getting information from some kind of you know supernatural, from some entity from the beyond. And I think it's great. So yeah, eleven years old, you're getting this idea that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I have lived before. Did you ever? Did you ever have an idea like of who you might have been? Like, a, you know, is a Civil War soldier, or were you like in the Revolution, or you know, did you have any ideas? Of, well, of- you know, when we lived um, for a few years in Massachusetts, just north of Boston, Marblehead, and I remember that, you know, my dad was such a, um, a an American history buff, and. We would go to every, you know, historical monument, old fort, historic renovated house. We'd stop on the roads at every plaque, you know, historical plaque, okay? Mm-hmm. So when we were living in Massachusetts, we went to where the first shot, quote-unquote, that was heard around the world was fired. But I remember standing on the mound where they claimed the man who fired the first shot I was so inspired by the whole story of the founding of our country. And this was like when I was in fourth grade. I just knew I had, you know, lived during the Revolutionary War in the United States. Sure. So you I mean, it was that kind of thing. It was like this deep feeling. Yeah. Okay. So you'd, yeah. al- you'd already kind of gotten that idea that the spirit has, you know, gone from person to person, that you have lived before and, and different lives. And is that something you ever explored down the path? Did you ever get like hypnotically regressed or anything like that and, and try to get uh, into some of those past lives yourself? Like that, those experiences yeah, well, of the, feeling that you were part of the revolution, like did you ever say like, hey, maybe I was Crispus Attucks? <laughs> well, yeah, actually that leads into the story as to how I became a, you know, a healer um, and left my tenured job at the University of Virginia to, you know, to become a shamanic healer and spiritual teacher. Well, let's get into that then first to, to give me a little people a bit of your background. So yeah, you didn't just, I mean, even though we talk about having these kind of feelings at an early age, being exposed to, to the kind of seventies new age stuff of the received knowledge and the, and the channeled entities and things. Yeah. Yeah. So even though you were that, it, it did take a while before you went full oogity boogity. Oh yeah. 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 So how did you study and, and what did you really want to be yeah. before you found your true path as, <laughs> as a spiritualist? Well, I remember when I was about 10 years old declaring to my parents that I wanted to go to Harvard and get a PhD at Harvard. Okay. So already as a young kid, I was like in this mindset that I was going to be in this, you know, heavy duty academic track. I don't know where that idea came from. It just was in me. Sure. So, you know, I finished high school and went on to get a, you know, to Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, got a bachelor's degree in Russian studies. And there's a whole story connected to my being a healer and a spiritual teacher that's connected into that thread of studying Russia. And then I took a year off and and then I decided to get a master's degree in Soviet studies. So this was all during the Cold War. I was going to say, because this is the time, like if you'd taken Soviet studies, then the next thing you would do is probably move on to the CIA or the Defense Department or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And I was. Like like Jack Ryan in the Hunt for Red October. Isn't he like a Russian specialist in the Hunt for Red October? Yeah, 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 yeah. Then after finishing my master's, I kind of went more into the um, humanities end of the spectrum and got a PhD and Slavic languages and literatures, but you know, 
being who I am and who I was becoming, I could never stay inside a box, you know. And so uh, one of the leading Slavic folklorists in the country was in my department at UVA. And um, like, so, so like Sla- Slavic folklore. So that's all Slavic folklore. When I think about that, I think about like I, I think about Baba Yaga or, you know, I think about something like, you know, when you, yeah, think about, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the idea of um, like uh, Eastern European. My family is it has a lot of Eastern yeah, European yeah. in it. So we always, yeah. you, you think about that kind of. Well, even, you know, Romania and Transylvania, like that whole thing, I, I, that leads in perfectly. Well, no, they, they of... aren't Slavs. Oh, they, they aren't, aren't Slavs, Slavs. Oh, Romanians. Okay. No, no, Romanians, Lithuanians. Where are your people from? Where are your ancestors well, from, just all, out of curiosity? Just all Polak. Oh, you're Poles. Okay. So your your people are West Slavs. Okay, okay? West Slavs. So I, right. West Slavs. Okay, so I studied the uh, the East Slavs, which are Russians, Ukrainians. Uh, Carpatho Rusins, um, White Russians, and then the the um, the East Slavs are the. Um, I think I studied some White Russians in college too. Yeah, Slovak and. Um, but that was just a drink. Anyway, and then there's South Slavs. But anyway, that's that's all my 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 egghead Slavic stuff. So, yeah. So I I I decided to study folklore, and then kind of you know halfway through my PhD program, my, my courses and for my PhD, I decided I wanted to, um, get a second PhD in anthropology, um, writing one dissertation. Well, the, uh, the graduate school turned down that idea, but I did do all the, the required courses for the masters in in anthropology. So actually, even though my sheepskin reads Slavic languages and literatures, my major was in folklore and my minor was in anthropology. And I was in graduate school throughout the 80s. And the common track for people getting a PhD in Slavic languages and literatures is that they would, you know, after getting their PhD, they would go and get a tenure track position at some college or university teaching mm-hmm. Russian language and literature and maybe culture. Culture being like the arts and, you know. Sure. Uh, you know, music and things like right, that. Because I can't imagine there's a ton of jobs in Slavic folklore. Like, there's no, you, you don't just open the paper and it says Slavic folklore expert needed <laughs> desperately. Right, exactly. But but kind of a combination of things happened, of course, in the very late 80s when I was finishing my PhD. And um, one is is that the Cold War was coming to an end. So I finished my PhD in 1991, right? And so the wall fell... And um, in 1991, um, I was actually in Moscow for a postdoctoral um, language uh, program. And uh, the summer of the coup, right, where Yeltsin basically, you know, and his cronies overthrew the Soviet government, Mm -hmm. right, and um, ousted Gorbachev. That must have been an incredible thing to live through in. What happened when the Cold War ended is that they, they basically enrollments in Russian plummeted, and you know it was harder to get jobs. And then the second factor was was that by the time I was finishing my PhD, I was really kind of losing interest in Russia per se. I actually ended up writing a dissertation about a Carpatho-Rusin Greek Catholic Orthodox Church in the southern coal fields of West Virginia. So fast forward, um, I finished my PhD in 91 and, and ended up not getting a job. Um, 
you know, a conventional tenure track job. I ended up getting a job running a language laboratory and teaching Russian at a state university. So I retooled in a new career being an administrator of teaching and research technologies in higher education. Okay. And I did that career for about 15 years. And what was kind of ama- what was great about that time is in the meantime, my mother, in addition to being a spiritual maverick, was likely mentally ill and was quite, you know, kind of crazy and abusive and, and uh, created a lot of havoc in my life. And so while I was in graduate st- school, I got into therapy, you know, just to try to sort out, you know, somehow figure my life out and figure out how to navigate my relationship with her. This was long before I even figured out she was mentally ill. Right. Sure. Well, that's why you were going into therapy, trying to figure out, you sort your feelings out and everything. I mean, it's a right, right, right. You know, and so I was in therapy in graduate school and eventually got into uh, Jungian analysis in my late twenties, you know, and did all the thing of depth psychology and, you know, so fast forward to and analyzing my dreams and, you know, all of this sort of thing. And um, as I was finishing my PhD, I kind of had this idea that maybe I should quit that PhD program in Slavic and go get a PhD in psychology. But, you know, the thing is, is that once you're at a certain place in a PhD program and you've like suffered and sweated and, right. you know, been tortured and, you know, all of that sort of thing, it's kind of hard to like just chuck that out the window and start from scratch again, you know? It's like I'm being on mile 20 of a marathon and then deciding, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this bike race over here instead. Like it's, it's right, right, so right. far, yeah, you exactly. work so hard for something and then you're like, well, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It. So that kind of opened up the thread of my interest in psychology and ultimately, you know, so I got into this alternative career and the, the great thing was, is that I ended up back at the university of Virginia after my first post graduate job. I'm running a a really great, you know, media center and, you know, was a faculty member and I was able to start teaching a class with a colleague that we entitled Story and Healing. And we were interested in dealing with the issue of race and racial conflict in the United States through the lens of Story and Healing using folk narratives, right? So, and his master's was in uh, African-American literature and theater. So we kind of combined our expertise. So we taught this course for 10 years. And what my students would always say afterwards, it became a very popular course with a waiting list to get in. You know, even though we were dealing with a really tough topic, right? Well, and yeah. my some of my students would say to me afterwards, yeah, after kind of like the third day, we were be- third class, we were kind of beginning to realize there was something, well, spiritual going on. Because uh, John and I were incorporating practices, um, you know, meditations and self-reflective practices and so on that we adapted from uh, Buddhism and also you mean like some in, of the, like nat- in the course requirements, like you would tell the kids, like, okay, yes. you need to have t- fifteen minutes of quiet time today and reflect on this. Yes, yes, uh huh. And I taught, you know, the the four noble truths of the Buddhist, you know that we'll feel pain because we're in a human body and then we'll, we'll suffer and that there's a way out of suffering. And, you know, suffering is being that when we begin to acknowledge our common suffering, that opens up compassion. And then we'll be, we're able to get past these kind of stories we have about one another. When you talked about stories in, in healing, were you guys using like folk narratives from uh, yes. s- like s- yeah. slave days kind of thing and, and how, uh, yeah, we were. okay. Yeah. Yeah, and also Russian. 
folktales. Oh, yeah, we were doing all kinds of wonderful, fun, creative, and very spiritual stuff, you know, because it was all soul work. We were really leading our students into deep soul work to help heal the wounds that all of us carry, right, because of the legacy of slavery and you know, everything in this country. Just for people to be able to have a uh, productive discussion on the topic or even a discussion where people can be compassionate from both ends and kind of yeah. discuss instead, yeah. of, instead of blaming or, you know, you know how, yeah, exactly. you know how so, Facebook is these days. Yeah. So in the late 80s, I was in Jungian analysis. And then before I started teaching that course, about 1993, I developed this chronic intractable pain in my neck and upper shoulders and upper back. And I... um you know, I went to doctors and they didn't know what was wrong and, you know, told me to take Advil or aspirin or something. And, and I went to physical therapy for a while. And this gets into the story, your question as to whether I, you know, have experienced any past lives. Okay. Mm. So one day I'm at the local health food store and I see a flyer that says, so energy healing, somato emotional release. And on a whim, I just take her phone number down and I call this healer and I say, you know, I want to come see you because I've got these issues with this pain and some depression and, you know, dealing with my mentally ill mother. And so I go for a session with her. And after we talk a little bit, she puts me on a massage table fully clothed and she starts to just gently, you know, kind of touch my body in different areas. And all of a sudden, within like 10 minutes, boom, I'm like my, I'm in this trance state and I'm my consciousness is altered and I'm experiencing the death of a holy warrior on a field of battle in the middle ages. Ooh, wow. Okay. And it's like my consciousness and his consciousness are kind of merged, but you know, I'm still in my Rachel consciousness. Right. And so he's, he, I'm experienced. So, you know, I begin to talk out loud and tell the healer, you know, kind of what's going on. And I said, I'm lying, you know, in the mud, I've got a lance through my solar plexus um, my horse is dying next to me and it's cold and, and damp. And, and then I begin to get images of how the enemy combatants had come on their horses behind me and had broken the back legs of my horse with their maces and, had, you know, unhorsed me and then, you know, driv driven the staff into my solar plexus and then moved so the, on. And the, sto the whole story, the whole death scene was playing the out whole in your story. Head. And, and, and I also got snippets and information about his life. You know, he called himself Jean. He was a warrior monk, you know, who had committed his whole life to, you know, killing the infidels on behalf of his Lord Jesus Christ, whom he loved and adored. And I saw him back in his home country in France when he would go back there for respites and he'd be in this little stone chapel, um, lying prostate, you know, face down on the the cold stones of this little chapel, very simple, you know, with a cross and some candles. And he would be there praying all day long. You know, he would take off all his armaments and everything. And he really believed that because of the path that he had chosen, that he, when he died, he would sit at the, the foot of his Lord Jesus Christ, uh, of his father, right? But then in that moment, dying on the field of battle, he had always told his horse, he was a very lonely man. Um, he didn't have a woman in his life. He didn't have family, he didn't have children. Um, he was all about being a warrior monk and his, his most primary beloved relationship was with this horse who I was informed was my dog in this life, whose name was Lily, a big ah. white, great Pyrenees mixed dog. And his horse was big and white. And he had always told her his horse 
that their his Lord Jesus Christ would forever protect them when they went into battle, that she had nothing to fear. They would never be harmed. And so his be his knowing that he was dying and hearing her suffering as she was basically dying of shock, right? All of a sudden, it was like he had flashbacks of all the faces of all the men, women, and children that he had killed. And he suddenly, with horror, realized what he had done and that Jesus did not want him to murder for him. Right. Jesus and so, isn't a big fan of murder at all. He was dying in agony that this dream or this belief that he was going to sit in heaven at the feet of his, his father and, uh, and of Christ in an instant was like robbed from him. And so the healer said to me, is there anything you can do to help him with this? You know, and I said to him in, in my inner mind, now, I said, real quick though, when you went to this healer, now, yeah. I, I, when I first heard the story, I was thinking that you just went to go get a massage because you were feeling some chronic pain. So was this, was this, no. was this specifically more than just, cause I was thinking, Oh yeah. Like what, like when I go to massage envy or something like that, like none, none of this kind of stuff goes on. No, no. No, her advertisement was for somato-emotional release, energy work, okay? And that was it. I didn't know anything about it. Sure. Like, you, okay, didn't, now, you didn't know you were gonna, had, they were, they, they were going to hit the middle-aged monk button. No, there was nothing in her website that spoke to past life regression or anything, right? It was just release deep conflicts and emotions, you know, trapped in your body. That's what somato emotional release means. And so what I think is interesting here though, is like you, you weren't set up for, it. you know how, I mean, how you, you sit there and it's like, it's like, yeah. a, it's a, like a pre-program. If, if you're, if you're going to be the one and I love, I used to love reading Bud Hopkins books or whatever, but if you're going to be the one who's going to be talking to Bud Hopkins, chances are you're thinking that you already had an alien experience. You know what I mean? So, so the idea, right, that, right. <laughs> the idea that you went just for, to get some little, like some emotional healing to maybe you figure, uh, work out some kinks in your emotions might help work out some kinks in your neck kind of thing. And all of a sudden you're laying on the battlefield right, right. 500 years ago. <laughs> yes. Like that's a big one. Yeah, that was huge. And so, you know, I talked to him and I told him that, you know, Jesus, there is no such thing as being irredeemable and that, he is forgiven and that he will seat at, sit at the feet of his father. And I felt his, this kind of release opening of his heart and this release. And I felt his soul leave his body. And, but did you have to tell him that the horses don't go? Sorry, man, <laughs> you get to go, but the horses <laughs> no, don't. No, 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 don't no, break no, the guy's no, heart. They go, they, they go. Okay. No, 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 they do go. They go with you. Yeah. And then I got up from the table completely pain-free and completely depression-free. And that lasted, you know, for several weeks. And, um, so the next day I was at home and I was just like in this altered state, you know, like seeing everything through this, I don't know, you know, it was a transformational, it was a life transforming experience. And I called her up and I said, I want to learn everything, you know, I've got to learn everything, you know. So I continued to go to her for energy healing. And it turned out that she was studying with this um, Cherokee teacher named the Venerable Dahani Oahu, who lives up in Vermont. Venerable Dahani Oahu actually not only holds an ancient 27-generation-old spiritual lineage uh, from her people, the Salagi people, and she's the chief of the Green Mountain Band of the Cherokee people that fled during the Trail of Tears up into the, well, you know, up north. Eventually, uh, her family ended up in the Green Mountains. There, so she has a whole story about that that you can read about. And she established a peace village up there with many of her students and followers and everything about 30, 25, 30 years ago. But she also is a recognized teacher in the Drinkunkagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism because, you know, she also tells a story that 
when she went to India as a very, very young woman um, and met her teacher. And uh, they met, recognized that they had been together in past lives and also recognized that the Cherokee and Tibetan Buddhist um, spiritual traditions were, as she puts it, of one taste. So I was very intrigued by this healer's uh, stories of her studying with Venerable. And by that time, in my early 30s, you know, I believed in reincarnation and called myself a Buddhist, but I had never actually lived, sat in the presence of a living Buddhist teacher. So I thought, oh, I'm going to go up and, you know, do a, a retreat with Venerable Tahani and, you know, and connect with a living Buddhist teacher. And when I got there, so at this point, I was about 33, 34 years old. When I got there, it was like the Cherokee practice. So she, she, at that time, she was teaching both Buddhist and Cherokee practices, okay? And it was like the Cherokee practices just, like, captured my heart and my imagination. I was blown away. And that meeting with Venerable was like, I mean, along with the, this, this holy warrior, you know, experience, mm -hmm. that meeting with Dahani, those two things just completely changed the tra trajectory of my life. And so I studied with her for a few years and then ended up leaving the community and um, went into what I call my, my spiritualness phase. So in the meantime, I was continuing to do a lot of energy healing work to deal with this chronic pain. And, you know, my mother was still alive and, you know, creating a lot of chaos in my life. And, you know, there, there were just, you know, many things I, be I began to figure out in my early 30s that I had symptoms of PTSD I figured out she was probably borderline narcissistic personality disorder. And I was doing a lot of reading about trauma and heal trauma healing. And, um, and borderline personality disorder, that's the scary one. Like, that's a, that's a hard one to deal with. It can be. It can be very hard to deal with, especially if you... But narcissism was really her biggest problem. I mean, she basically was like, you know, I'm right. Everybody else is wrong. I'm everybody's victim, you know, and you know, I know better than you do. And, you know, all of that sort of thing. So, you know, and any appearance of like rebelling against, you know, her need to control was like met with, you know, rage and, you know, and abuse and all of this sort of thing. So I was continuing to work and, you know, through my thirties on my healing, I was married. And in the meantime, what ended up happening was that I would say, oh, going on eight to 10 years, every time I would get on the table, for a healing session, I would end up having more of these, what I call visionary experiences of violence. So it would either be past lives that I had lived. If you believe in past lives, you know, you don't necessarily have to, it could also be ancestral, you know, it could have been lives of my ancestors and my Ooh, blood yeah. lineages. And I would also experience collective violence. And in the process, I was getting an education in how to shift consciousness with intention, with clear intention, with the intention to transform and to heal, and then to move with the, the feelings, sensations, inner knowings, inner hearings, inner seeings, and then to, to run all of that, you might say, suffering through my own body, right, through my own energy field, and then to transform it. Okay, so let's unpack mm -hmm. that real quick. Now, number yeah. one I'm interested in, were all the experiences, the visionary experiences, as not necessarily graphic, but vivid, I think is the word. So were they all as vivid as that first time that you crossed over? Many of them, yeah. And Many of when them. you say experienced a lot of violence, was it just 
you know, is it a lot of battlefields? Are there any in particular that stick out in your head that you're like, um, like, yeah, like, like this one was a like a, a story. Like, I wish I would have, I wish I would have actually had a chance to live that life. <laughs> like, I thought that would be interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, a lot of them, uh, the majority of them took place on the European continent. Okay. Um, some of them Russia. There were a few I was shown, you know, like one lifetime in Russia where I was, uh, you know, a warrior. So most of them were European. Uh, most of them fell between, you know, the, well, I had one lifetime that I saw that may have been 8th century Celtic, Scottish, but, you know, they were sort of in that genre. And sometimes I was the perpetrator. Sometimes I was a victim. And yes, and many of them revolved around war and battlefields. Okay. And do you think there's a connection to like how like you almost were in the CIA? <laughs> like, is there like, because that was a path yes. that you were kind of going towards? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in the shamanic teachings that I'm connected to through my other teacher, Alberto Viodo, we talk about multiple possible destiny lines. So when we're born, you know, we come out of our mother's womb, basically, but energetically, we come out of what is called the destiny tunnel, you know, and there are cords of light that shoot out as we are born into the physical. And, you know, there are multiple possible destinies that we could destiny paths that we could walk upon, right? And depending upon a whole mixture of things like what kind of lives we've lived, you know, and what issues we're working on, what our ancestral lineages, you know, are predisposed to, what the conditions were in our family, we get pulled into certain destiny lines. So yes, I mean, from a very early age, I mean, I read the first major novel I read, I read A Tale of Two Cities when I was 10 years old. Okay, you know, a little light reading. So I had this kind of strange and I'll always remember when I was four years old, you know, and the Vietnam War was going on. And, and back then, of course, you're probably you might be I don't know how old you are. You might be a little younger than I am. But they would give reports of the number of dead and wounded every night on the news. Sure. Of course, they don't do that anymore because of censorship. They don't well, want like, well, you, you know, U.S. citizens to really know the horror of war, right? And you don't even see the caskets coming back. Like I know in Vietnam, they would actually no, show the, the caskets coming back. Yeah. And of course, oh, people yeah. were, when, and, when 50 people die a day or, you know, or whatever, and you hear all those kind of things, of course, or a week, or, I mean, I, I, I remember exactly the statistics, and this is before my time, but I still uh, am yeah. in, interested in it because it was such a transformational era of the country. But when I think about yeah. that, you, you think about if, if people saw that happening every night in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, in yeah. the past 10 years, the stuff that they saw in the Vietnam War, the, I think the protests against the Iraq and Afghanistan will probably be just as oh, big as they yeah. were for the Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I remember as a four-year-old, five-year-old saying to my dad, you know, like, why do, why do humans, why are we fighting this war? I mean, can't we fix it? Can't we stop it? Can't we just give money to the other side? You know, and I mean, so weirdly, I mean, I came in at a very young age with this very strong you know, worry about war and violence, right? Which then manifested in, you know, reading A Tale of Two Cities at the age of 10, you know, then reading Alexander Solzhenitsyn about the great purges of Stalin when I was 15 and, you know, and then immersing myself in what I later realized ret retrospectively about my my bachelor's thesis and my master's thesis and my PhD dissertation, having a, a strong interest in how oppression and violence affects the individual on a soul level, on a spiritual level, on sure. a psychological level, and also 
as a collective, you know. Well, and as a good Buddhist, you're doing your best to understand suffering. Yes. And my parents, you know, were old civil rights activists and everything. So, and they were very plugged into. And my father, actually, one of his last full-time jobs was for Campbell Soup Company. This was about 20 years ago. He was the Equal Employment Affirmative Action Officer. So he was always very much an advocate of underprivileged people and an advocate of workers' rights and things like that. So I grew up in this environment, you know, that was very concerned with with, yeah, you know, suffering and alleviating suffering, right? My parents, you know, were too. So despite the fact that my mother was creating a lot of suffering, you know, intellectually, (laughs) philosophically, you know, she was opposed to the use and abuse of human beings, you know. Um, Mental illnesses. So, yeah. So I had this thread and then what happened, you know, I mean, I remember watching a a documentary on the Holocaust that came out, I think when I was like 14 or 15. And, and after watching the first episode, I just, I sobbed and cried. I mean, I was just so like, you know, I could not believe how human beings could do this to one another. So, you know, I had this kind of thread and in all these visionary experiences that I talk about in, you know, a memoir that I'm working about is I was kind of plugged into the bloody stream of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and then I taught this class at UVA where I was trying to merge spiritual principles and understandings and the forging of compassion into talking about and opening pathways to talk about the racial divides in our country, which is a very heated topic. And this was long before the the recently emerging contemplative sciences movement, you know, which has emerged in the last decade. I mean, I was doing all this. What are contemplative sciences? I don't think I've heard of that. Well, the contemplative sciences is a movement in, um, in business and the law, the environment and higher education to bring spiritual principles and practices, particularly from Buddhism. It started with people interested in, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness meditation. Sure. We have Richie Davidson at Madison here is doing Yeah, there you go. I mean, he, he was one of the founders of this movement. So that's kind of burgeoned into this whole kind of movement that's uh, unfolding in our in our you know, country in the Western world right now, um, you know, to, to bring meditation into the schools and yoga and meditation into undergraduate classes. And so that's, you know, right now called the contemplative movement or the contemplative sciences movement. So my colleague, John and I were doing this in our class on story and healing and race, racial healing and transformation long before those ideas were beginning to take hold in higher education. So I had this, this big thread. And then of course, you you know, the, the parallel, the the parallel thread of, you know, working to heal myself from trauma and, and realizing that talk therapy had its limits because I was in talk therapy, you know, starting in my early twenties and then through my thirties. Then I, you know, discovered energy healing and found that it was more, powerfully transformational. At the same time, the energy healing was connecting me into this sort of what I would call, you know, the energy stream of all the violence that has marred our human experience for millennia, right? And getting training kind of on the job training, you know, and how to run that through my my own process, my own healing work and transform it. So it was this amazing intersection between my personal healing and collective healing, which I was then carrying out in my undergraduate teaching, where I was learning also how to work with groups, because I could feel like, you know, in a classroom, if you're talking about 
race and all the tensions that people have, right? You know, stuff comes up in people, hard stuff, right? They talk about that, you know, when they say um, the electricity of a room, you know, and that everything and the whole feeling, the atmosphere of a room changes. You know, when somebody says something yeah. that half the people are shocked by, like it's, it's not just a mental reaction it's a visceral reaction no. and you, you can really feel And it's a bodily everywhere. reaction. Yeah. And so I was learning how to work, you know, in groups with this energy and transform it, you know, through processes that we put students through, but also in terms of like I was doing on the healing table, you know, running the process through my own energy field, through my own consciousness. And, you know, students would report by the end of the semester, you know, major shifts in awareness that, you know, they were connected to light. They were connected to hope. You know, they had changed from believing violence and racial tension were just part of the hardwiring of human beings. And they had moved over to believing that we actually are hardwired to be collaborative and cooperative and peaceful. So in the meantime, I really wanted to get out of the administrative work I was doing in higher ed. And I kept trying to find jobs, you know, because by the time I was close to 40, in my early 40s, I was an upper level professional and, um, you know, was making quite a bit of money with benefits and the whole nine yards. And I had wonderful colleagues that I collaborated with, with both in the technology field and also in this emerging area of peace and violence studies. And so what was the deciding factor to move into? Yeah. So the deciding factor was, um, I got divorced. I, you know, left my husband in 2004 and divorced in 2006 and I'd still been having problems to find all this healing work with kind of chronic insomnia and and um, thought that leaving my marriage that had become kind of difficult would solve that. And I, I actually began to get sicker and worse. And I had never, you know, I had tried all kinds of things, you know, meditation and herbs and homeopathy and energy healing and everything. And I finally went to my doctor and said, you got to give me a drug. I mean, I've just got to be able to sleep, right? So this was about a year before I, I left my marriage. And so he put me on this drug called clonazepam, which is a, this class of benzo drugs that I didn't know at the time could be highly addictive. So I was taking this drug, you know, when I went to sleep at night, right? You know, because I was instructed, you know, take one tablet, however milligrams, you know, when you go right. to bed at night, and at first it helped. And then kind of after about a year and a half, it began to not be as effective. And I went back to my doctor and said, it's not as effective. And he said, well, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night, take some more. And little did I know that my body was getting habituated to it. Well, to make a long story short, the fall semester of 2016, I had a problem with an employee, you know, who had been kind of basically harassing me. Um, in various ways. Um, I was stressed out. I still wasn't sleeping well. And I ended up running out of my prescription and called it into the pharmacy. And then I was so busy, you know, I didn't get there to pick it up. And then in the meantime, my cat, um, this employee that I had fired um, and had been involved, he had grieved the termination all during the fall semester. And, you know, I'd had to testify on the side of the university and sure. it was just very stressful. And I, I got to work Monday morning and my boss called me and said, you know, that the hearing officer had overturned his termination and he was going to be returned back under my employ. And, and um, this is a guy that I'd had a lot of trouble with for years. Sure, no, you know, I mean, and had been Yeah. And, um, and then that same morning, my cat was very sick and I took her to the vet. So this is all leading to the turning point. So I, I basically then went to work, you know, we had to interview some employees. I was completely stressed out, got a call telling me that 
from the vet telling me that my cat was dying of congestive heart failure and I needed to come as soon as possible. And I ran to the vet and they brought her in and she was dying and I held her and said goodbye to her. And, and then they basically, you know, administered euthanasia to help her cross over. And so she died in my arms and I called um, this animal communicator I've been working with for a number of years with my animals to talk to her. And what my cat B said to me through the animal communicator is that she had stepped up and accepted that she was dying, that she was going to be very brave. Oh, well, that's nice at least. Yeah. My dog Lily had died several months before and Lily was this amazing spiritual being. And I'd had an amazing experience at the time of her death, which in and of itself is a story that led me to do what I'm doing. And in that the same thing. She was sick one night, took her to the emergency vet. Next day, got a call. She was bleeding out. I needed to come and held her in my arms while they administered euthanasia. And she was like my heart and soul, this dog. Like I always felt like if I was a dog, I'd be Lily. And if Lily was a human being, she'd be me. You know, it was this weird kind of thing. And after she left her body, I was lying on the floor in the office, you know, um, in the treatment room, holding her body and being very bereft. And I was seeing her standing behind me in her dog form. And then I heard the words, that's not me, I'm over here. And of course, I thought I was imagining things, right? Making it up, because I was so sad. And then I heard her say, that's not me, I'm over here. Turn around. And I got the feeling that she wanted me to crawl on all fours and stand where I saw her in my mind's eye in the room behind me. So I positioned myself on all fours. I had two friends with me in the room, mind you. Did they hear it too? Or they just were they just like, what's going on? No, but they told me later they felt this incredible energy in the room. Mm-hmm. And they saw me doing this. So I stood where she was. And all of a sudden, I felt her dissolve. And her energy went in like this. And then there was this huge explosion of light. And I heard her say, stand up. And all this light exploded out of, out from me. Oh. And then two days later, she appeared to me in, as a great white spirit being. And she told me, I merged my energy with yours when I died. And I will be part of your work in the future. And then the next morning, a neighbor came by from up the road, who I knew from dog walking. She said, I have to tell you something. Last night, Lily appeared to me. And she told me to tell you that she merged her energy with yours and she's going to part of your work in the future now did that dog walker like have an inkling that you were into spiritual stuff and things or is she just like well she and i didn't know each other well but you know we we had talked chatted you know walking dogs and she was a reiki person and i told her i was interested in you know energy work kind of thing but we didn't know much about one another so that was really weird right that she came and gave me the same message so then, you know, B died, and then two nights later, I went to bed the night after she died, fell asleep immediately, and then at midnight woke up, and I felt B in the room with me. And I heard her say to me, I stepped up, you need to step up, you need to step up. You, you know what you're supposed to be doing, and you're not doing it, and it's time for you to do it. So this is after you, you, you lose your cat. This is a couple months before you lost your No, this is this was a couple of months, a few months after I lost Lily, my dog. Okay. And then B died, my cat. And then she was talking to me from the other side and saying, you know, you're, you're not doing what you're, you know, you're supposed to do, what you're, you're meant to do. And if you don't, if you don't leave your job, it's going to, you're going to get sicker and you're going to die younger. And I just knew she was right. So I didn't sleep the rest of the night. The next morning I call my doctor's office 
and I say, I've got to come in, it's an emergency, I just have to sleep. And so little did I know at the time that I was going into a, because uh, I hadn't had the clonazepam for right, four so days. Right, so you're going to withdrawal. I'm going into drug withdrawal, and I'm in his office, and all of a sudden I go into massive drug withdrawal, and I'm shaking and all this sort of thing. And uh, he gives me a shot of Valium or something, and some fenugrin for the uh, nausea, and sends me home. But I know for sure I need to quit my job and become a healer. Right then and there, it was like that. So all my friends said, look, Rachel, just wait, you know, they, he put me back in the clonazepam, tapered me off slowly, you know, they said, just wait, you know, and, and as a faculty member, I had four months paid medical leave, I'm um, six months paid medical leave. So I took four months of leave, waited it out, recovered from, you know, the drug withdrawal, got off the clonazepam and just took the plunge. I wish my cats would tell me stuff like that. The best thing my cats do is yeah. it's like, Hey, it's time to eat pal. Like that's about like, are they, I you know, know it's, it's, terrible you know i mean how how is it that i a serious academic could end up yes telling these stories about you know being a, a dying warrior in a field of battle and having my deceased cat come and speak to me and tell me to you know to do what i know i'm meant to do and right. so like I, a psychic dr doolittle i know so i i quit my full-time job took the plunge i had very little money i had some money left from an inheritance and i Ran out of that. I live, you know. I, I I then signed up to study with Alberto Viotto, who's written a lot of books about you know his journeys into becoming you know a a new shaman from with his studies with uh, medicine people of the Amazon and Andes, and um, he's very well known. He has one of the biggest uh, shamanic training schools in the world. He and Michael Harner are the two that have the biggest shamanic training schools. So I went and studied with him. I'm thinking about the different traditions you've been exposed to by this time. Because when you talk yeah. about originally the Cherokee uh, spiritual tradition yeah. mixed with a Buddhist spiritual tradition, and now we're moving on to the like the the native South American or the Central American uh, tri yeah. tribal traditions. And first of all, I think for the uh, people in the audience, let's do a quick definition of a shaman um, so they get out of their heads the idea of a witch doctor. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, that's really right, important. The the first stereotype that comes into your head, so. What is a better definition of a shaman so they can have that image in their head from now on instead of something from Gilligan's Island? I'll just say, so there's a history of the word shaman and shamanism. It was, it was a word that a man named Mircea Eliade in the 1950s, he was a literary writer and scholar, and he wrote a book um, called Art, you know, um, on uh, a cross-cultural comparison of so-called shamans. So he borrowed this word shaman across cultures where he talked about how they went into a trance state and traveled to heavenly upper worlds on behalf of the healing of their tribes and their people and so on and so forth. So that word shaman or shamanism then took hold in academic realms among anthropologists and scholars of religious studies to describe anybody in a essentially non-Western culture um, or non-Westernized culture, right, in terms of modern times, right, um, who hold a position who do anything with plant medicine, doctoring of any kind, spiritual healings, spiritual teachers and leaders and so on. Okay. So that's really the way academics have used the word shaman. And it's also been used to call cultures who have these traditions, shamanistic cultures. Now, the word is very controversial among native and indigenous peoples because they, some of them feel that it's kind of like tried to homogenize something that's very rich in cultural diversity across well, I culture. Can, I can culture. see that too, because it's like saying, you know, when you say you know, yeah. a shamanistic culture, well, I mean, I think Western culture is very shamanistic. It's just they separate the, 
a lot from the medical, from the spiritual, you know, aspects. But yeah. the, the same idea is there are spiritual leaders all over. And so it's just a, yeah. so you wouldn't, want well, your, I don't, yeah. you wouldn't want your priest to be called a shaman, just like somebody's who in their village or in their tribe who does something specific for them, just a, a, yeah. a generic, it's very generic. Yeah. And I, I definitely do not call culture shamanistic. I mean, I, that's just really not PC, you know, and I don't even agree with that. But so, you know, basically, you know, I talk about shamanism. When I talk about shamanism, I'm talking about Western shamanism, which is something that has been borrowed and adapted from indigenous cultures, you know, and also pre-Christian cultures of Europe, right? So there's Celtic spirituality, right, from that area of the world. And it's it's the medicine traditions. And so, you know, one of the things that is beautiful and Venerable Dahani actually talks about the fact that when people come to study with her, you know, that her teachings sometimes feel more Buddhist to some people, some it feels more Native American, and some it feels more like esoteric Christianity, which is this whole idea of, you know, um, because there is a story among some Native Americans among her people of the pale one who came and walked on this continent, spreading teachings of peace around the same time that Jesus was supposedly in the Middle East. Oh, sure. So I also give a nod to my Christian roots in the sense of the purity of the teachings of Jesus, of compassion and love, right, and healing. Well, and I always think it's in- interesting, too, because is it really, you know, we talk about spiritual healing even from a Western tradition. You know, yeah. just last year, we had the body of a saint come to Madison here. Oh, and- yeah. Uh-huh. And, and uh, Saint oh, Maria Germani, I can't remember her name, but it's a, you know, a body of a, yeah. little, a little girl that was murdered, and like eventually, yeah. um, you know, people had images of her forgiving her killer and and things like that. Mm. But just yeah. but people were going there and were sick. They were going to visit the body of the saint, and they were sick. So when we when we talk right. when we talk about the idea of when we talk about as we as you say a, a cultures with a shaman or cultures with a. a medicine man kind of thing when you look at the difference there's more similarities than there are differences to even in what we consider more western culture in that it's just not that different well yeah i mean there are lots of similarities there are also a lot of differences and diversity of expression and and uh you know practices healing practices Actually, there was a wonderful woman who was a professor at UVA and who was the widow of the famous anthropologist Victor Turner. And um, she has a wonderful book called The Hands of the Healers. She and Victor traveled all over the world, you know, and ended up studying the healing traditions of Africa. And she studied the healing traditions of the Inupiat of Alaska and other cultures. And, you know, she talked about the hands-on healers, the ones who would lay their hands on people and, you know, talking about the the moving of energy and, you know, the bringing in of energy and the healing of illness and, you know, spiritual illness, soul illness, even physical illness. So, yeah, you're right in part. And I also wish to honor the fact that there's also a lot of diversity because, you know, we in Western civilization want to homogenize everything, you know, sure. and and talk about I mean, yes, as human beings, we're all similar, we're all connected, but I also think it's important to recognize the beauty of the diversity of expressions. Well, I was thinking that it's just, it's very easily, it's very easy to define a culture as an other 
kind of thing or just too different or, yes. or, or alien to understand. When or alien. Yeah, when exactly. There's, there's bits of, I mean, of course, it's important to find, everybody's different, but there's bits that are similar. Yeah, it's important to find the commonalities. I mean, that's the whole point, you know, of looking at our our common shared human suffering, right, and connecting through that in order to heal, you know, all the violence. So, so in short, you know, I did get some training in psychodrama for trauma survivors. Psychodrama is a form of using sacred drama, you know, to help a client heal where they have people act out people in their lives and parts of themselves and uh, did a lot of interdisciplinary research <clears throat> in many disciplines on, you know, um, violence and peace and, and trauma. There's there. So I have this kind of, an, you know, interesting combination of academic and spiritual knowledge combined with you know, deep and rich practices for healing trauma, as well as um, ceremonies, you know, fire ceremonies, ceremonies, sacred water, water flower ceremonies, you know, that I've learned and have been gifted to me through, you know, my teachers. What's an example of what, what's a water flower ceremony? Well, this was a practice that I learned from a uh, Paco uh, among, of the Caro Nation, a man named Sebastian. A Paco is like, you know, a medicine person or a spiritual leader, right? Mm-hmm. And he, this ceremony was that he took me, I brought him to Virginia and he took me and I live, you know, in really in the middle of the mountains here. I can see the mountains from my window here. Okay. And, uh, I, I took him up. The mountains are very sacred to the indigenous peoples of the Andes in Peru. Um, they're considered to be great spirit beings wearing the clothing of mountains. Nice. So, and I love mountains, you know, I've always resonated with mountains. Of course, I've lived in this mountainous era for 35 years. So I took him up on the hikes up into the mountains here. And he said, we need to go to a waterfall. And I said, okay. And he said, we're going to go buy a bunch of red and white carnations, which are sacred to the indigenous peoples of the Andes. They grow wild there. And so we trekked to a waterfall, you know, there's a hike, there's a number of places here where you can hike in about, you know, a mile and a half and get to, you know, beautiful waterfalls. So we trekked into a waterfall. He had me wear all white and we carried this bucket filled with carnations and he had his medicine bundle, which uh, they call in the Andes a mesa, which has, you know, stones in it that are taken from places of power, you know, that become a part of the, the medicine person's personal medicine and okay. what they use to heal others with. And I have a mesa as well through my work with to Viodo. So, you know, he took his mesa, you know, scooped water up from the, you know, right where the falls were falling into the water, did prayers over the water to activate the healing properties of the water. We tore all the petals off the carnations and put them in the water. We said more prayers over it. And then he had me um, stand. And this was actually in November, so it was cold here. Sure. And so he then poured this freezing cold water, you know, over my head with all the flower petals pouring the water down my head, down my back, down my arms, and spreading the water and the flower petals all over my body. And of course, I'm screaming because right. it's so cold. Feels great. Right. And it's a practice to cleanse your energy body and to cleanse your mind and emotions. Um, and so when it's done in sacred ceremony, in a healing space, mm-hmm. where you've done prayers to the waters and you know called up their healing properties... So the consciousness, the spirit of the waters, the spirit of the flowers, the spirits of the mountains, right? Then what happens is, is that they have this deep penetrating healing energy 
And so that's now a ceremony I do for my students. Do you do that in, in the wintertime too, to really stick it to them? No, we, you know, no, my students are probably not as hard. Most of my students, some of them are as hardy as I am, but you know, the, the majority of them are like, no way. Right. <laughs> we go in the, we've done it in the warm summer months, you know. Okay. That's like a nice ceremony then, the water flower. Yeah. And then fire ceremony where you, you, again, you're, you calling, you pray to all the powers of the directions and earth and sky and, you know, call in all your guides and the helpers and, and then, you know, you do a fire ceremony and, you know, you, you build the fire in a sacred way with prayers and, you know, singing chants of healing as you build it. And then everybody gathers around the fire. And this is from Alberto Viodo. And then, you know, everybody has a stick that they pick up from the ground, you know, maybe four to six inches. And they blow a prayer into the stick of whatever it is they want to release or transform in their lives. And they come up and they put the stick in the fire and then pull the energy of the fire. It's like the water, you know, the mm -hmm. fire has consciousness, the fire has raw energy and you use it to cleanse, you know, your energy body, your physical body, your mind, your feelings. And then we put a stick into the fire with prayers that we've blown into the stick for mother earth and for people we love. I think all the, the ceremonies sound interesting, fun, powerful, because they're so chock full of symbolism. And, and it feels yeah. like, you know, one of those things where you come in and, you know, the more you get into it, the more you, you the more you give it, the, it, it feels like that the more you would get out of it. Now, when people come to you for a, a particular type of healing or have come to, you know, some of the people you've worked with, is there ever something where you're like, I'm not qualified to help with that? Because, you know, like you wouldn't go to see a uh, oncologist for a psychological problem or something like that. Is that, you know, what kind of, of healing works best with these type of powerful ceremonies that you feel has the, you know, has, has the best effect on people? Yeah. Well, I mean, anybody can benefit from the ceremonies I've described and, um, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can come with a physical illness and with the wish to cure yourself and, you know, you can come into the weekend classes that I teach which are called the four lodges of the great medicine wheel of the new earth. And you can come and you build your own medicine bundle or mesa. And you go through a, a healing transformational initiatory process to turn those stones in your mesa into healing allies. And many things can shift for people in those lodges. I've seen students go through my classes and just experience powerful, profound shifts in their lives. Like they've come in and, and they, um, you know, they're stuck in a track, you know, in a work track that they don't like, or they've struggled with depression or, you know, anxiety, or they're in a relationship that's dead end, or they don't have a relationship and they want love in their life. And they can actually see as a result of going through these weekends where we do a lot of these ceremonies and do healing work on each other, you know, big, powerful shifts in their lives. So, you know, anybody can bring anything to the table you know, spiritual healing, healing on the soul level basically activates the deep potentiality within us. And it helps us also release any ancestral problems that we carried into our life. So for instance, we talk about, we, we now know that diseases like um, cancer, bipolar disorder, what's called bipolar disorder, um, depression, um, diabetes, even alcoholism, you know, can be carried through, are carried in our genetic, in, in our genes. Sure. Oh, yeah. And the truth is, though, is that these, these genetic predispositions are just predispositions, right? I mean, it isn't necessarily given that they're going to get activated and become full-blown. 
And so the powerful thing about energy medicine in terms of whether you're doing it in a ceremonial context in a group like we do on our weekends or whether you come to me for an individual energy medicine session, we can go and remove the woundings that you've experienced in your life, the woundings of your ancestors, the deep affinities you know, that have created the illness or disease in your family line. We can remove them, literally. And, and then what we do is we bring back soul parts. We bring back parts of ourselves that went into the subconscious because, you know, the outer world wasn't conducive to them. The way I describe this is like if somebody, oh, let's say somebody as a child has a, like with me, with my mother, it was like my self-confident self disappeared okay. because she wanted to control me so much, right? And so I felt as a kid growing up into my teen years that somehow I needed her to be strong, right? Which meant that my own inner resources, my own personal strength went into the subconscious. And we can bring those parts back. So I would say that occasionally I have clients that come to me and I, I, I say, you know, this is not what you need. You need to go seek out, you know, medical treatment. Um, I sometimes recommend to clients that they... Uh, they get on an antidepressant. Um, I mean, I think there are problems with the way pharmaceuticals are prescribed. Well, well, willy-nilly. Yeah, but they sometimes have a use, you know, in terms of supporting people, particularly if they're working very strongly on their own healing and transformation, you know, and they need a little extra boost, you know, to kind of get them out of the pit so they can do that work. You know, sometimes I have clients who come to me who come out of a very, I would say, Christian, fear-based, like they're worried, you know, they're convinced that there's been black magic, sorcery, that they need an exorcism, and they, you know, they're very caught in that fear-based worldview. And sometimes I will say to clients like this that I can't help them because I, I recognize in them that this belief in the fact that they are victims of, you know, powerful black magic and sorcery may block my ability to work with them. However, having said that, you know, um, somebody may come to me and say they feel like that there's been some sorcery done on them. And what I define as sorcery is like the, you know, sorcery is basically a misuse of energy for negative intention, right? And, you know, that can even be like somebody projecting a strong negative thought towards you, right? A hex kind of thing, or even, even just somebody hates you a lot. Yeah. You know, in some cultures, they might call it the evil eye, right? Oh, yeah. You know, that, that's something I always enjoy about because, you know, you talk about fear-based and, and things like everybody's always, we, in heavy metal songs, you put up the devil horns, you know? And oh. That's, and that's the, but that the idea that Ronnie James Dio, when he came up with that, he was looking for a hand gesture because Ozzy Osbourne, the, the previous singer in Black yeah. Sabbath, would always put up the peace sign. So he'd always put up his fingers in the peace sign. And so Ronnie James Dio needed a, and he remembered this gesture that his Italian grandmother used to do, the maloch. Right, to ward off the evil eye. Right, and it's funny that it's interpreted as throwing up the devil horns when it's really- Because it's the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like knocking on wood, right? You say, oh, you know, hopefully this thing won't happen, knock on wood, right? Mm -hmm. But um, the thing is, is what I always explain is that nobody can affect us negatively unless there's something inside 
that has an affinity for that, you know? And, you know, I just thought about something else. I think that you just said with the, with the knock on wood. And it's something that everybody does all the time, but we completely forget. When somebody sneezes, you know, and you immediately say, yes. God bless you, or you say, Gesundheit, right, or right. whatever. Right. You're warding off. You're, you're doing the exact same thing with that kind of, uh, you're trying to negate any kind of sickness that would be carried or something yeah. like that just by doing that. Yeah. And so that thinking, we do that without, you know, we have that ingrained in us that we do without thinking all the time. And so we should never be surprised when we see the roots of that. And we do that having forgotten that we used to know in our cultures going way back, you know, before Christianity began to distort all of this and talk about it as being the work of the devil and all this sort of thing, right? Or something that only primitive people do. We forget that we used to understand energy, right? That it's energy, you know? Sure. And that if you go like this to somebody, like you feel like somebody's sending you bad juju and you go like this, you're actually putting up a protective field, right? Or you knock on wood. This is going back to my old folklore training, okay? right? This is, this is folklore. This is folk life. You know, you knock on wood because you're sending that negative energy down into something that came from the earth because Mother Earth can absorb the negative energy for you. It's almost like a lightning rod. Exactly. Or you say, God bless you, because then, you know, whatever heavy energy got expelled when you sneeze, Right. Uh, because we get a buildup of heavy energy, right? Anytime you feel stressed and sad or whatever, you know, you you have heavy energy. So you sneeze, that's a release, and you say, God bless you, so that that will go back to the light, right? Go back to God. Sure. Yeah. So we're, we're talking about how people have that. Uh, they already have these instincts. And, and you say that uh, it's funny that we did already know this. We already had some kind of sense about energy. Uh, back and forth between each other and negative energy, positive energy, violence, peace, you know, um, you know, we, when we talk about that, what are some tips you'd say for people who are looking to have a little bit more of that in their own life? When you started to get some learning about shamanic healing and learning about how to transfer energy and take that into yourself and transform it into a, uh, a positive from a negative, from suffering into acceptance... For people who would like to get a little bit of that in their own life, what's a couple of quick ways that they can start using those energy in positive ways? Well, you know, one of the most useful things that an old friend, healer friend of mine, told me to do, this was back, it was kind of not long after, you know, that that dying warrior on the table. And I, you know, I was academically trained. I mean, I had a healthy skeptical mind. And even though my mother was a psychic, you know, she would always talk to me about, oh, seeing ghosts and, you know, all this sort of thing. I mean, you know, I have, I have a healthy desire to kind of test these things, right? Oh, absolutely. This is why I say to people, like, sometimes I'll have a client come to me and I can tell they're kind of skeptical. And I'll say to them, what? You think a woman who, like, suffered through getting a PhD and had an academic career and actually left her academic career to do this? just like is completely nuts and woo-woo, you know? Right. Don't you think I like tested this against everything I know about human psychology and, you know, all of this? So mm -hmm. one of the best things that this healer friend of mine suggested I do is uh, to, to test whether I actually have spirit guides and helpers, you know, that are in the non-visible, you know, dimensions, right? She said, ask them, say to them, I want you to prove to me that you're here, that you're with me. And I want you to give me a feather, a hawk. So I decided to ask for a hawk feather. 
And lo and behold, I was out, you know, a couple days later doing a hike up in the mountains near where I lived. And I end up cutting down bushwhacking off the trail because I suddenly realize it's getting dark and I need to get home. And, you know, and I'm bushwhacking in the middle of the woods down the side of a mountain in this trail. And I have to circumnavigate this, this tree that had fallen down. And there on the other side of the tree are all these feathers sticking straight up from the earth. Right. And it's like, lo and behold. So that's one way people can begin to get a sense of connection. Sure. To look for something. To ask for something, you know, ask for a sign and then just release it. Don't worry about it. Don't obsess about it. Right. That's interesting. We, in our discussion today, um, and you, you talk about the example of the feather, because I've, I used to listen to a podcast that would talk about the, the ways of the Huna, the Hawaiian kind of uh, medicine uh, man. or Their, their, their medicine tradition. Yeah. So the, the ways of the, the Huna, and this was like 10 years ago or whatever. And it really was, he would be like, try to, he's like, Try to manifest a blue feather. He's like, think of it. He's like, just ask for a blue feather, just like you said right there. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And so then I did that because I just listened to it. I thought it was interesting. It was fun. And the guy would, the guy would put, <laughs> there you go. he would put in Star Wars references and stuff. And I was like, okay, because he's like, he's like, Huna is kind of like the Jedi. And I'm like, I'm with you. And so I'd listen to this. And then the blue feather. And then I had to say within like two hours, I saw a blue feather in the middle of the, like just, and it wasn't even on my mind anymore. Like it was gone. And then I was walking down mm-hmm. and there was one sitting there in the sidewalk, like uh, by my, the office building when I used to have a job. And I was like, holy crap, <laughs> like there it is. <laughs> and yeah. so I really do think that is on the first, when you're talking about trying to, you know, trying to find some of this in your own life, that asking for a sign. Yeah. Journeying is another thing that's very much part of the Western shamanic tradition, meaning that you know, you do a journey into something called the lower world, or you can go, you can, you can journey. So, you know, you might rattle or drum, you know, do a little meditation, feel your grounding into the earth, feeling a cord of light that goes down into the earth from the, your, the bottom of your spine, feel earth energy come back up, you know, fill yourself up with that. You know, this is where mindfulness meditation, you can, you know, just sit and focus on the in-breath and out-breath through the nostril, or I do the rising and falling of the heart center so that we generate energy of the heart, the open heart. And then you can start to rattle or drum and, and imagine yourself coming into the middle of a place that feels sacred and safe to you, like a beautiful field. The place I go to is a beautiful open field, you know, with mountains and creating a bowl, right? I call this the sacred valley. And then you can call and say, I would like to call in my power animal. Okay. And you can, you know, come beautiful power animal, show me your face, show me your face. And you can wait and see what comes into your field of awareness. What you, it may be a feeling, it may be an inner image, it may be a word, you know, whatever it is, you trust it. What's your power animal? Well, I work a lot with jaguar and hawk. Those are the two that I work with the most strongly. I also work with Lily who this dog that I was a dog in her physical life, you know, I work with her some, she sometimes is a horse that I ride and she sometimes manifests as uh, two white wolf dogs that I work with. So finding your power animal is a common activity, um, you know, and just meditating to ground in the earth and that sort of thing. And so, you know, more recently I've coined the term mother earth mysticism, which ultimately I want to use instead of shamanism you know, to kind of let go of that controversial word. Sure. And also because the, the mystical aspect, the mystic that looks for 
the connection to the divine, to all that is, to the spirit within all things, the connection to one's deepest self, to one's soul, you know, that you can find through earth-based ceremony and earth-based connections, right? Um, you know, connecting to the plant people and the the animal people, the two and four-footed, the creepy crawlers, the wing, the feather, the furred, the scaled, the shelled, you know, connecting to the spirits of the mountains. And uh, so I'm using this Mother Earth mysticism term because I think at root, you know, as human beings, we've been lucky, as the Dalai Lama has said, to be given many, many paths to enlightenment, right? Many paths to to connect more mm-hmm. deeply, right? To forge the deepest compassion within ourselves. And one of the things that I feel about this path, this spiritual path that I've been on, which is this combination of all these streams, you know, Buddhism, Native American spirituality from North and South America, um, Western shamanism, which, as I said, is this kind of hybrid that's been developed over years. Right. And you even read the book about Set in the 1970s, too. So it's like yeah, and, all of and these. Right. And so that kind of new age, you know, um, kind of stream and then, you know, Christianity. And as I feel it, you know, the deep, the deep truth of love and compassion of Jesus, you know. And, uh, you know, this is a mystical path, right, where we each, you know, Western shamanism is all about the path of direct self-revelation, right? You have a direct personal relationship with the plant people, with the tree people, with the mountain people. You know, you have a relationship maybe if you're indigenous through the culture, you know, whatever is prominent for them. Like the the great Dagara shaman Malidoma Somme from Africa talked about how his people have a very powerful, deep connection to their ancestors, you know, who have passed on. And there are many practices, many rituals connected to keeping that communication between the living and the deceased ancestors alive sure. because the ancestors helped them, right? And, um, you know, I have a deep connection to to mountains, you know, and have had communications from mountains, similar to my communication to my deceased cat, right? Well, okay, when you have when you when you have a communication with something like that, like how does that manifest itself for you? Like with the, with the um, with the dog, uh, or with Lily, you saw Lily's form, right? And with the cat, you heard yeah. you heard a voice. Heard her. And mm-hmm. so with a mountain, like. Um, you know, does it tap you on the shoulder? Like, how how do you feel that communicate? <laughs> how do you feel that communication? Well, in the cases of the mountains, a couple of ways. A couple of times, I've gone for energy healings, and with my mesa, you know, which is my medicine bundle, um, which has stones in them connected to the mountains, the Andes, as well as to the mountains around here, the Blue Ridge. Uh, mountains that I've lived, you know, here, near, and on for 35 years. And in those cases, the mountains came into my body and began to shake my body. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's interesting, um, if you look at Tibetan Buddhism, in their tradition, there are these individuals who've been gifted with a particularly intimate relationship with a particular spirit being that at certain times they call in uh, you know, come into their bodies and then they speak on behalf of that spirit being, right? Like, like channeling. Like channeling, yeah. Um, and they move and they dance and all this sort of thing. Or there's certain ceremonies that are done that call in this particular, you know, this particular spirit. So in my case, I felt the mountain come into me and then again heard them like great, bo- in one case, a great booming voice that was speaking to me, you know, and saying to me, I have been testing you and you 
are now my servant. And um, it was like this electric energy in my body. But again, I had no expectation. I mean, it wasn't like I went to get energy healing so I could connect to this mountain. I was working on a particular issue that was up in my life, you know, in that moment and, you know, had this mesa sitting on my body while this energy healer, Maggie McIlvain, who I love, who lives in this area and who's a friend and colleague of mine, you know, was doing her thing, you know, opening the field and calling in the spirits. And And what I think is interesting here is that when you talked about the ways that people in their own life can can start getting involved and starting to try to understand their energy and understand this, whether yeah. whether it's through meditation or trying to manifest something that you ask for a sign. A lot of times, it feels that just in the process of it, and you've said this in your own your own experiences, as you were opening yourself up to this energy healing, as you were engaging in these rituals, right. as you were just starting to do it. I mean, you just be like you left yourself open to the possibility. And then you got into uh, doing some kind of ritual, some kind of healing, some kind of meditation, and then all of a sudden this other stuff happens. And I, I think that's a that's a good message that leave yourself open to things because you never know yeah. what kind of things can happen to you. Yeah, it's absolutely the case. Yeah, I mean, I never really sort of thought about it that way in regards to my journey, but truly, yeah, just having an openness. I mean, for all that my mother did some damage, you know, she also, because of her spiritual mindset, you know, and because she talked about ghosts and spirits and energy and everything. I mean, I had a basic orientation of openness to this stuff. And, you know, interestingly enough, of the three kids in our family, I'm the only one that got into this and was really connected to her on this level. And when you were a kid, did you ever see anything like that? Did anything rub off where it's like, uh, your mom said like, well, you know, there's, there's somebody standing in the corner looking at you. And did you ever have No, she just scared me. Okay. (laughs) That that to me was just scary, you know, but yeah, I mean, I had such a deep connection to mother earth and to nature. I mean, I remember in second grade, I had to walk on this long country road from where the bus dropped me off, you know, after school and to my house. And I, I remember there was a pond there and I remember sitting by the pond and just feeling like the pond was alive, you know, and conscious. Being open to that energy and, and also being open to the, uh, it's not animism, but the idea, just the idea of, uh, that everything has a, everything has a spirit, you know, every, that everything out there from the tree, I guess it is animism, from the trees and the, and the rocks and everything. You talk about the mountains that, Everything has some kind of consciousness out there and to be in tune and try to to try to get that. Yeah, and Buddhism, you know, we talk about all sentient beings. And so sentient beings in Buddhism usually only include animals, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and human beings. We're animals. But they don't generally include sentient beings as being trees and mountains and stones. The indigenous worldview, at least among the Cherokee, I mean, I don't want to stand here and speak of right. Native American worldviews, because I'm not Native American. I don't represent all Native Americans. Or, of course. But, you know, the, the, the spiritual worldview of Venerable Tahani, of her people, of her lineage, the spiritual worldview of the Pacos, you know, of the Andes, is that, yes, spirit is in everything, and that everything is consciousness. And, you know, even the people who were taking LSD, you know, kids that were taking LSD in the 70s, right, you know, were having these amazing experiences of just having their their ego consciousness torn down and all of a sudden they're seeing and feeling the trees are talking to them, right? This is what right. I've read. I've never done it myself. You know, and, and they begin to realize that everything is like in this incredible, like creative, incredibly beautiful 
with darkness and light and, you know, consciousness and everything is connected to everything else through this web of energy and light and all of this sort of thing, right? And this is consciousness, you know, this is the consciousness of creation, right? This is the, when we talk about, like in, when I say prayers and I prayer to, I pray to creator spirit, you know, who goes by many names. Now in the Judeo-Christian tradition, this, you know, spirit has been visualized as this being, you know, this God, right, who is like, you know, in the form of a man. But when I pray to the spirit of all things, I think of the great creative awareness and consciousness that is in every molecule, right? A molecule is dreaming itself into being, right? An atom is dreaming itself into being. All molecules that come together to create some kind of form is dreaming that form into being. Hmm. And this is a a great mystical understanding, you know, that mystics from many traditions have spoken of this, this revelation or this experience that they have. So, you know, the, the path of mother earth mysticism is for me about awakening to that and tapping into that. So more and more, even as I, I've now been doing shamanic energy healing sessions for almost nine years and I've been teaching um, you know, the spiritual way to students in weekend classes and also other for other class formats. Um, I'm just starting a series actually online called Mother Earth Mysticism, where we're going to do a lot of prayer work and a lot of journeys to connect with the spirits of plants and animals and stones and herbs in a ceremonial way. So we develop this dynamic spiritual and soulful connection with the spirit and consciousness within all things. And the truth is, is that this is not metaphorical. I mean, you mentioned it kind of being, you know, the ceremonies being symbolic. But what I always tell students is that, well, you know, if it helps for you to think of it as symbolic, which is really about making meaning out of, right? Sure. A symbol is something that holds some meaning, right? That's the way we think of it in the Western world, in the Western academic sense. But it's not symbolic. It's actually there. And as the more I do this, the more, the deeper I go into my own spiritual walk, into my own spiritual practice. And, you know, the more I feel it as a palpable presence. Sure. Like I go outside and when I get out of my own busy mind and my own, you know, stuff and whatever it is that's, you know, diverting my consciousness away from the greater you know, the greater awareness, the awareness of the energy and the spirit and the soul, you know, I can feel, you know, the consciousness of the trees. So something that might start as symbolic or might start as, you know, a metaphor, you can yeah. eventually, the, you know, the, the more you leave yourself open to it, there's physicality that you feel after a while. Yeah, it was interesting, you know, because when I was getting my PhD, I became really, really interested in the, iconogra the iconographic tradition of the Russian Orthodox Church. Beautiful icons. I mean, I'm sure you've seen images, you know, well, you know, sure, the, reproductions of them. Like of Jesus or the saints or the Virgin. Yeah, or, you know, the Virgin holding the baby. And I became aware as I stood, like, you know, when I was in Russia in 1983 and 1991, I would go and visit these cathedrals and, um, and I would stand in front of these icons and I would suddenly become aware that they were a doorway. It was like, here's the, the Blessed Mother, right? which is the mother of all mothers, which is the divine mother, the divine feminine, right? Who goes by many names and many forms, Quan Yin in many traditions. And here she is. And the icon is like the doorway to connect to that great consciousness that is this 
divine loving mother, right? Sure. So there, the, it's the idea that you see that and then like I like the idea of, you know, using the symbols with like iconography or a cross or, you know, anything that people use that lets them focus on something in order to open up a wider truth to them. Yeah, not just a wider truth, but to the energy of it, right? To the connection, right? So it is truth because ultimately it becomes a truth. It becomes a truth, right? Now, some people interpret it as the truth, right? They begin to think like Jesus is everything and Jesus is the only one, you know? I mean, I'm not out here saying that my spiritual way is the only way you can do this. I mean, I respect all ways, you know? As Gandhi said, I am, you know, and I manifest that in the multiplicity of my own spiritual journey, my own spiritual path. You know, I am, I am Jewish, I am Christian, I am, you know, Buddhist, I am Native American, you know. I mean, there are many ways and many, and it becomes the truth for us. So for me, the truth becomes the truth of the love that is the fabric of the universe and the love that is there. And I think that's a perfect way to segue into talking about if people are interested in learning more about you, Rachel, learning more about the truths that you've been exposed to and the different faiths uh, that you've had a chance to take part in and learn about and study, where can they go to find more information about you and your writing and your courses? Well, they can go to my website, which is Rachel Mann, PhD, all mashed together, Rachel with just the E-L, M-A-N-N. Dot com, rachelmanphd.com. They can find me on Facebook. So I have a personal page, which is just Rachel Mann. I have my business page, which is Rachel Mann PhD. And um, I have a Twitter feed as well um, and an Instagram feed. Now, the Instagram is under Mother Earth Mysticism. Okay. Mother Earth Mysticism. But if you go to my website, you'll see Mother Earth Mysticism, the front page. I have all my classes and events that are listed on my website. I've got an upcoming um, weekend medicine wheel lodge at a beautiful farm named Galley Winter Farm just outside of Charlottesville, owned by my beautiful friend and colleague, Gail Totter, who does healing work with people and horses. Mm. So she's got beautiful horses there. So I've got one coming up February 24th through 26th. I have the next lodge is April 7th through 9th. So the North Lodge is where you work on harnessing your highest destiny for life. And it's a very amazing class where you you write down all your roles and identities that you've held in your life and all the teachers. And then we do a ceremony that you burn all those roles and identities and teachers so that you can step into your own personal authority. Oh, sure. So you're not you just... Know? Yeah. And then harness your your true soul's calling. Like, what did you come here on a soul level to do? And then the South Lodge is in April where you're working on creating abundance and releasing the story of scarcity and fear so that you can step into a bigger story for your life of abundance and harmony and balance. Well, this is fantastic, Rachel. I got to thank, and we're going to have all these links. You guys can go to the show notes and we're going to have links to all the stuff and you can go right to Rachel's site, check out her writings, check out her classes and learn more about this fascinating Mother Earth mysticism because uh, <laughs> I, love, I love talking about this stuff. I love talking about the connection of folklore and all these traditions and healing and uh, I'd love to hear more about your past lives sometime, Rachel, but I, I thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, well, thank you, Mike. This has been incredibly fun. Wow. Well, nice job, Mike. And thank you, Rachel, for that very revealing and insightful interview. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. I was, I really thought it was interesting how open she was. 
and I'm not the world's most guarded person probably because I say things a lot of the time that most people wouldn't say. But at the same time, I thought she really opened herself up to being a vulnerable. And I think that was an interesting uh, type of thing. And, and that's probably part of the lessons, I think, mm-hmm. of in, in that tradition and that you have to be willing to admit your vulnerability in order to make the kind of breakthroughs that you want to make. Right. Uh, in, in your personal development. So, uh, mm-hmm. Rachel, real interesting lady. And some of that vulnerability that I thought um, that she re- really, <clears throat> you know, I found her bravery in admitting that vulnerability to be exciting and inspiring. And so uh, this week's song kind of takes off that in that sometimes in order to get where you need to go, you need to give up. You need to stop striving. You need to stop fighting, and you kind of you kind of surrender to the will of the universe. I think. Aha! Uh-huh. And I am the worst example of someone who refuses to surrender <laughs> to the will of the universe. Well, it's a good reminder then, you know, it's a, a thing to keep in mind when you're meditating next time, right? Uh, right. And that is something where it's not that you don't stop working for goals or things like that or give right, up. Yeah. It's just that you give up all the pain associated with the struggle. And that's mm-hmm. what this song's about. It's called To Accept Is Not Defeat. Until it's old Bang your head against the wall Till your brains fall on the floor Cry till your eyes are red Till you find a moment of clarity That this striving beyond surviving Just more futility
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you to our patrons. We talked about how much fun we had at our hangout last week, and we really, truly do appreciate you and look forward to more of those. And we want to send a special thanks to our patron, Ned. Ned, we saw you this weekend. It was great to see you at the show this weekend. And Ned's at the level where we thank him every single episode of that Patreon level. So we want to make sure that he gets that special attention he deserves. Thank you very much, (laughs) Ned. And all of our patrons and our awesome Patreon community just want to say we appreciate you and you help uh, us to do this kind of awesome stuff every week. So thank you. We love you. We kiss you. (laughs) We kiss you. Oh. I found her. (laughs) Okay.